This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who survive challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm Beck Wren. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Zali Thomas. Today, we're chatting with Dr Anthony Young. Anthony is a senior lecturer in crop protection for the University of Queensland. He spent his career researching the diseases impacting agriculture in Australia and Asia. Anthony has published a wealth of research around the detection and prevention of disease in a wide variety of plants, including sugarcane and tropical fruits. He's passionate about creating beneficial microbial communities for improved soil health and better agricultural outcomes. In today's episode, Anthony will share how his research is invaluable in more efficiently combating pests and diseases in the field. He'll break down the importance of soil health and Anthony will explain how research is benefiting farmers to ensure a more sustainable and resilient agricultural future. Let's dig in. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Beck. So to kick us off, what is remote sensing for disease in agriculture? I suppose just to take a backward step, when we think about agriculture, we're actually thinking about the story of humanity. Humanity wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for agriculture. And ever since you know we started gleaning wild ancestors of our domestic crops to eat as we were going, that we domesticated them, we're putting one genotype or a restricted number of genotypes in one area. And when you have that, that's when you often get diseases because if you've got a big crowded group of organisms that are very closely related and you have one pathogen can get into that, then it's likely to get into the whole lot of them. And so humans have been battling diseases in crops for millennia upon millennia, so thousands of years. The ancient Romans, when they got rust in the wheat, they assumed that it was a visitation from a god, and so they made a god called Robigos, and they used to sacrifice little puppy dogs to try and assuage Robigos's anger so they could grow their wheat. So there have been many steps to the point where now that we understand that diseases are caused by microorganisms. We now know there's a whole range of different microorganisms that cause disease. And the trick then is how to detect them. How do you find, yes, this plant has a disease and that plant doesn't have a disease? So if we take a human example back even a couple of years ago when COVID-19 came out, we had the rapid antigen tests, which is a way of detecting the antibodies of that virus. Then we moved to qPCR, which is a highly sensitive and specific test, which is sort of the gold standard for diagnostic testing. That's fine when you have a sample in the hand, when you're looking at a, a plant, you can do a qPCR test, you can do a lamp assay, you can do a whole lot of different tests to detect a microorganism. But the bigger picture is how can you detect diseases in whole crops, in fields of crops, and, and whether or not the whole crop is affected or part of the crop is affected, how does that tie in with the weather patterns in that area? And that's that's where GIS remote sensing is really making massive leaps forward. What kind of technology is used in order to remotely sense a disease in the field? A lot depends on what's available. And we've got whole groups who have been flying UAVs, drones at low level, and you can kit them out with different optic systems, in particular hyperspectral analysis. So we see in a visible wavelength of, let's say, blue to red, right? 
but a lot of stuff that's going on in the plant world is beyond that blue and beyond that red. For example, bees, when they look at a flower in UV light, they see things that we can't detect. Likewise, a lot of our new optic systems go into the hyperspectral systems, and so they're looking at a much broader range of wavelengths, and that can actually pick things up that the human eye can't pick up, so very much like an early warning system. That's really handy if you've got drones, you've got the tech, you've got everything you need to go. But some of the approaches that groups that I've worked with have done is actually use satellite imagery. So we've got a whole host of free satellite images available. We know when they were taken. We know what systems were used to take these images. We can do some basic NDVI analysis to look at how green something is, for example. And that really lends itself to big data sets that go back maybe 10 years in time. So we can actually go back 10 years and we can see what changed then and what's occurring now. And can we match the phenology? When I say the phenology, the way the plant looks, how many leaves it's got, if those new leaves, are they old leaves, are the leaves falling? What are the triggers going back in time that have led to that outcome today? And so the the beauty of the satellite imagery is you can really go down to very, very fine scale, but even on a broad scale, it's cheap, readily accessible. You just need the skills to be able to interrogate those data. So you can use it to figure out why something has happened. Can you sort of use that to predict in case of like weather patterns or anything that certain diseases will be more prevalent in certain areas of time? Like if we go back into a drought or if we go back into a wet season, can we use that to sort of know which diseases like agronomists should be on the lookout for or farmers should be aware of? Yeah, so the data that you can generate with your GIS applications can be built into early warning systems. And so there's a whole new field of digital ag. And just so your listeners know, years and years ago when I was at school, right, agriculture was where the bad students got sent to. We got sent down to grow radishes beside the river because we weren't trusted with a Bunsen burner, and rightfully so, I suppose. Modern agriculture is a completely different beast. Any technology you use in medicine or in space flights or in virtually any field of technological pursuit, we apply to agriculture. Advanced chemistry, we use synchrotrons to look at phosphorus uptake in root systems. In agriculture, we're seeing some massive changes. And one of those big changes is digital ag space. So, for example, I've got colleagues who are doing some work on grapevine diseases. They want to know whether or not this particular vineyard is going to get powdery mildew this year or whether they get downy mildew or another disease. So they can backtrack through time using the satellite imagery. They see, well, we now know that that signal shows that this plant has that disease because we've gone back and we've ground truthed it. What were the circumstances to lead to that outbreak? We're not there yet, Beck, but we are getting to the point where we're integrating technologies across different platforms so that we can grow more crops. Because as you know, the world will be feeling a massive pinch in the very short term. So we need to get really smart really quickly. Do you have any stories about remote sensing that you've used that's been integrated successfully into the field or any colleagues or anything? I suppose my introduction to remote sensing involved a disease called rubber leaf drop. So everything we do in this human world of ours involves rubber to some extent. If ever you've landed off an international flight, you've landed on natural rubber. The wheels of those jumbo jets are made of natural rubber because that's the highest quality and you don't want to crash upon landing. The earplugs that you're listening in, 
they contain rubber. Okay, so natural rubber is grown in plantations, and these plantations are generally right throughout Southeast Asia would be the biggest producers. They're all built off one species of tree called Hevia brasiliensis, and that's the rubber tree. And what the local workers do is they scratch a little bit of the bark off at an angle, and then the latex falls out of that, runs down and gets captured into a cup. And then later on they come and collect all this rubber. And it's rubber. Like if you throw it, it bounces. You know, it's rubber. But they refine that and they produce rubber that way. I should just mention the rubber tree itself is deciduous. So once a year they call it wintering, even though it's in the tropics and there's no real winter and the conditions get a bit dry, the rubber leaves fall off. That's a completely natural thing. And then they regrow again and then you get more production of the latex because, of course, the leaves are little photosynthetic units. They're capturing the light from the sun. They're harnessing that energy, using that energy to create or to fix carbon and to make little molecules and ultimately produce latex. But what's happened since about 2016 is that the leaves are falling off out of season in large areas. And so when the leaves fall off, there's less latex production. And so people, the smallholders, they're largely smallholders, little little families of let's say, dirt poor people who are making a living harnessing this rubber, right? But they're not getting the latex anymore, so they're not getting paid. So they can't invest in their children's education, food, these sorts of things. So I got involved in it because a colleague of mine has uh, links with the Malaysian Rubber Board, and he kept asking me these strange questions about this pathogen and that pathogen, so Neofusococcum, Pestalodiopsis, Colototricum, all these strange pathogens. And in the end I said, Amara, what are you talking about? What's going on? And he told me about this rubber leaf drop. And all these scientists throughout Southeast Asia are doing this mad scramble to try and find out what the pathogen is, what's causing this problem. How do we control this pathogen? Ultimately, that led me and Amara and another colleague, uh, Professor Vic Galea, to travel to Indonesia, Sumatra and Malaysia back in 2019 to investigate this problem and try and find out what was causing it. I won't go into too much details for your listeners, but what I will say is having worked in crop protection for about 20 years, I've called it experience, call it whatever, but you get a good vision as to what a disease is. And and consequently, you get a good idea of what a disease is not. And I spent a few days in these rubber plantations and I was looking around and when I'm looking at the leaves, yes, they've got Pestalodiopsis, yes, They've got Neofusococcum, yes, they've got Colototricum, yes, they've got Oedium. They've got this whole zoo of different fungal pathogens, which you'd expect in any natural forest. You go for a walk today in the field and look up in the trees, you'll find little spots in the leaves. None of these in and of themselves, to me, looked like they were going to be causing the exact problem. And so I was talking to, you know, you always talk to the managers and have a chat to them about what they're doing, but I always find time to go and talk to the workers in the field. Because the workers in the field, they're the ones who are intimately associated with that crop and they know they know what's going on. So I started asking them questions. You know, what are you using? Are you spraying? Yes. Does the spray work? No. Has it been drier than normal? Oh, yes. And when it does get dry, that's when we have a lot of this rubber leaf drop. And so that started making me think about the environmental circumstances that were leading to this. So plant pathologists and, and human pathologists, we all talk about this disease triangle. And the disease triangle links the host with the pathogen and the environmental conditions. You might have the pathogen and you might have a susceptible host, but unless you have the correct environmental conditions, you won't get disease. 
Likewise, you might have the adverse environmental conditions, you might have the host, but without the pathogen, you're not going to get the disease, right? So that got me to exploring the disease triangle. And so we had a PhD student, Fatin, who was working on this problem. And her initial remit was to try and develop an early warning system so we could warn the farmers, this is coming, make sure you get your interventions in place. But instead, what we did is we pivoted it and we said, okay, what if it is the environmental conditions that are causing this rubber leaf drop? And so what Fatin did is she got 10 years of satellite data going back. I think it was weekly intervals of satellite data. She had to do some pretty technical stuff because sometimes it's clouds and sometimes it's not clouds. You know, it took a lot of interrogation. But then what she did is she mapped the phenology using those satellite images. She said, okay, the leaves are dropping now and they're not dropping now. They're dropping here, but they're not dropping there. And then what she did is she split a massive, I think it was something like 10,000 hectares that we're looking at. And that's one of the really cool things about GIS. We're not talking field scale, we're talking landscape scale. We can do some big data crunching here. And she separated it based on the phenology into areas where the rubber leaf drop was occurring and areas where the rubber leaf drop was not occurring. And then what she did is she married each of those satellite images to the nearest weather station data. And that was pretty clever how she did that too. I go into that. But what she found was that the areas with the rubber leaf drop had significantly increased temperature during that period. And the inflection point where that temperature increased significantly was around that 2016 mark. And we also had associated lower rainfall in those areas too. Not so much lower rainfall across the board, but rainfall at different times, which threw everything out. And so then you have a situation where where you have a changing climate and you've got measured data of a changing climate, you have that rubber leaf fall. Where you don't have that, you don't have that rubber leaf fall. Now, your listeners will probably say, well, that's not a smoking gun. That doesn't prove that there's not a pathogen there. But it certainly means we have a much clearer understanding of what's causing this rubber leaf drop than before we started. When it comes to running a successful agricultural enterprise, healthy soil is vital. You've done a lot of research into soil health at a biological and molecular level. What has this research shown? Well, when you say soil health, you generally get one of two reactions. You get the eyes glaze over and they say, oh, it's, that's nonsense. There's no such thing as soil health. You know, soil is soil. Yeah. But increasingly, we're seeing that people are starting to have a better understanding of soil and the fact that soil is alive. It houses gazillions of microbes and microinvertebrates and earthworms and, and other stuff. And, and put it this way, when you have healthy soil, you know your soil's healthy. <laughs> when you don't have healthy soil, you know it's not healthy. It's not as productive. So there's a whole new field of research which is only just emerging. It's, it's tightly linked with some work that I was actually involved in at UQ before I was actually working at UQ. And the field is called rhizophagy. When I say rhizo, rhizo means roots, phagy is to eat. And so rhizophagy is a term that describes how plants pick up food from the soil. Now, all your standard agronomy textbooks, if you talk to any agronomist who was educated at the Queensland Ag College before it became UQ, plants can pick up ammonium or nitrate, which break down products of urea. That's nonsense. We now know that plants can pick up proteins. Proteins, of course, contain nitrogen, amino acids. Plants can actually pick up proteins from the soil. Plants can actually pick up bacteria from the soil. Not only pick them up, 
but they can gobble up those bacteria. They can release the nutrients from those bacteria. Furthermore, plants can actually take the cell wall of the bacterium and shoot out that little still alive protoplast of a bacterium, just in its cell membrane, out into the soil again, where it gets its nutrients, builds a new cell wall and comes back into the plant. That's astonishing stuff. I believe that a better understanding of the biological processes that govern soil interactions is going to lead to a reduced reliance on chemical fertilizers and an improved soil health. I could talk for a long time about many of the different aspects of soil health, but one little bit of work that I've been involved in and has been really quite rewarding for me is work done with a, a company that I work with called Metagen. They're based at Gatton, they're a little ag biotech startup company. And another colleague of mine, Graham Sterling. So Graham Sterling is one of the most preeminent nematologists in the world. And when I say nematologist, many people would be familiar with nematodes, many won't. Nematodes are these tiny, microscopic little worms. You call them a worm, right, but they're not really a worm. They're not like an earthworm, they're tiny, right? Years ago, there was a, there was a scientist, I think his name was William Cobb, certainly Cobb anyway. Cobb worked on nematodes and he said that if every particle of earth was removed from earth, every particle of water, every river, every tree, everything was taken away except the nematodes. You could still follow every hill. You could still follow every valley. You could still identify what tree is there based on what nematodes were underneath that tree. So nematodes are the most abundant animals in the known universe, right? We don't know of anything that is more abundant than these guys. The problem with the nematodes is that Yes, while we have plant parasitic nematodes, nematodes that will damage our crops, if you've ever grown tomatoes, you might get root knot nematodes, which can cause the death of it. Maize will get a lesion nematode. So you do have plant parasites, but you've got a whole lot of nematodes that do other stuff. You've got nematodes that eat bacteria. You've got nematodes that eat fungi. You've got nematodes that eat other nematodes. It's a real zoo in there. The problem is the expertise required to identify these nematodes is all very much aging. Most of the nematologists in the world would be in their 70s. And if please excuse me if you're a nematologist in your 30s, I haven't met you yet. Most of them are pretty old, right? And one of the dangers we have is when that level of expertise starts retiring or passing on, right, we're left with massive knowledge gaps that we can't address. Now, I'm a molecular biologist. I do a lot of molecular biology. I pretty handy at extracting DNA from things and sequencing that DNA and inferring information from those sequences. That's that's something I can do. And so working with Metagen and working with Graham Sterling, what we've been doing is developing little DNA tests. It's really easy to do a DNA test for a specific nematode. That's been done heaps of times. So I can design a test that can tell me not only whether the root knot nematode is present, but how many of them are present. That's not too difficult. The question is, can we develop a test that picks up that grand diversity of nematodes, all those bacteriovores, all those fungivores? And so far, so good. The test where we've developed, there's a couple of steps to it. Number one is the DNA extraction from the soil and, and how you sample that soil, making sure that you get a good representative sample. We get Graham and his wife, Marcel, they do the actual physical count so we know physically what, what is there using the old microscope. Then we do the DNA extraction. Then we do a next-generation sequencing run and we target genes that are fairly specific to the nematodes and then we sequence them all together. So in a single sample, we might find thousands of different kinds of nematodes and now we have a little DNA code to say, 
when you get this DNA code, you've got that nematode. Some of the work involved was pretty cool. A nematode is microscopic, right? I'm talking, I don't know, a big one would be half a millimetre long, right? They're, they're small. So you've got Graham Sterling and his wife. They've got these little bamboo skewers and they've super glued an eyelash to the skewer and they're working under a microscope, fishing out individual nematodes of a, a given morphology. So you say morphology A, let's get out 10 of these nematodes that look like this. And they put them into individual tubes. We put some onto a slide so we can seal them and preserve them. And so we know that this nematode is, this is what it looks like. Then we get it sisters and we extract the DNA individually from these tiny nematodes and then we, then we do a sequence. And we've actually discovered nematode species using this, nematodes that were previously unknown to humans. And, and there we are, we have a little sample, we've got a DNA sequence. And now when we do the bigger DNA test, we can say, yes, this sample contains X amount of these nematodes and Y amount of that. That's amazing. Oh, I should tell you how that's going to um, feed into the soil health. Yes, please. I've sort of skipped a step there. That's all right. So... When we think about soil, we've got to cast our mind back to about that Devonian period. I'm no geologist, but let's say when the, when the plants started invading the earth, when the plants came out of an aquatic sphere into the terrestrial sphere. The first plants that came out, and virtually every plant since, has associations with fungi. So fungi are associated with the roots. They increase the surface area. They can help mineralize phosphorus, they can bring water up to the plant. And so in a super healthy soil, number one, you'll have a whole lot of plants, won't you? And those plants are getting photosynthate, they're getting light from the sun, they're turning that into energy, they're making sugars, and they're releasing those sugars to the fungi, and the fungi in return are helping the plants grow, right? So in a healthy soil, you've got plenty of plants, and you've got a whole heap of fungi. And fungi are filamentous organisms, like a super fine net that explores right throughout that soil surface. Now, in most, virtually all of our farming systems, we employ tillage to some extent. We break up the soil so we can get a good tilt, so we can plant a seed in that. When we do that tillage, we're breaking a lot of those fungal networks. We're smashing them up. Now, they'll, they'll regrow, but we're doing damage there. And when we do damage to that, we're releasing a lot of, let's call it labile carbon into the system. So carbon that's readily digested by bacteria. So if I have a soil that is completely undisturbed, it's going to be full of fungi. And so when I do a soil test on the nematodes, I will find a whole heap of fungivorous nematodes, nematodes that eat fungi. So I know I've got a pretty healthy soil. On the other hand, if I get a soil sample and it's completely dominated by nematodes that eat bacteria, then bacteria are very flux organisms. That means there's been a massive disturbance in that soil. And so we can actually measure the soil health by the number of fungivorous nematodes versus the bacterial vorous nematodes. And that tells us a lot about what mineralization processes are going on in that soil. Ergo, using nematodes, we can assess soil health. Yeah, amazing. So is that very widely used in the industry currently, like outside of research, more like the agronomy space or anything? Is it, is it used very often? Because it seems like it'd be very beneficial to use <laughs> firstly this is again hot off the press we still haven't published this data so your listeners uh, are getting a real treat here anyone who wants to publish before me don't it's something that should be adopted more widely even previously you can do a soil test and you can 
study the nematodes in that soil. That that can be done, but that's again that physical counting. So it takes a long time and it's quite expensive because of that time it takes. I teach a few courses at the University of Queensland, one of which is plant and environmental health and plant protection. And a lot of the students who go through those courses are going to end up as agronomists. And I feel very passionately about the fact that most agronomists go out there, they can do a chemical test on a soil. They can say how much nitrogen is there and how much phosphorus and calcium and sulfur. But previously, they haven't done the biology. And yet, it's the biology that liberates most of those nutrients that they're looking at in the chemical test. And so I'm being really passionate about trying to inspire these students when they go out and become agronomists to be able to, not all of them will become agronomists, but many will, to look at the biology that underpins that system stability. And if we can give them a test, if we can say, okay, for $200, you can take a soil test, you can send it to LabX, and they can tell you the nematode assemblage, and we can actually interpret those assemblages for you and tell you what's going on, then their farmer is going to be having a win and they're going to be having a win and we're going to be producing better crops, healthier crops, preserving our soil, which is an absolute critical resource, and hopefully growing food for another seven, 8,000 years. Yeah, amazing. So when research like this that you're doing at the moment, when it is implemented into ag, is it more so done through companies that read the paper or is it do you go and speak to people? Like, how does it become popular? Like, how will people take this and adopt it into ag to help improve the soil health? How, like, how will it become a general practice? Farming is a gamble to some extent. You know, you, you watch the weather, you, you plant your crops, you get your rotations, you, you hope for the best, right? To see these sorts of technology, whether it's remote sensing, whether it's digital ag space, whether it's uh, soil health stuff, to see these adopted there has to be a value proposition to the farmer before a farmer sprays right let's say a, a farmer gets um fall armyworm in their maze right and they decide i have to spray a biological or a, a chemical i have to do something about that they've done the calculations that if they don't spray their yield is going to be so small that it's not worth harvesting but if they do spray it's going to cost them so much to spray and they'll increase their yield by enough to cover the cost of those sprays so You've got to set up that value proposition. You've got to be able to say to the farmer, like for a soil, a soil test is really easy. Let's say the soil test comes back that you need 100 units of nitrogen to grow that crop, but the farmer, before they did that soil test, was planning on putting 200 units of nitrogen on. Well, we've just halved that nitrogen input into that system by doing a test. Likewise, with the biologicals, we have to be able to show the farmer, okay, when you assess the biologicals, do it before your intervention, then do your intervention and see what's happened. And that's the other cool thing. By assessing the soil health before and after, we can actually index how well an intervention has worked. Yes, you can apply this bacillus strain to try and control that organism or this metarhizium, whatever you're looking at. Can you still detect that organism in that soil afterwards? Yes or no? And that's something that the new soil health molecular diagnostics can deliver. So now it's time for our quick fire round. I've got a few questions that I'm going to ask you in rapid succession. There are two rules. The first rule is you have to keep your answers to a maximum of one sentence. And the second is you have to answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Soul. 
Okay, first, what is the best lesson you have learned from a mistake, stuff up, or a failure? Everything I've learned has come from a stuff up or a failure. The best lesson I've learned is to let students know they're going to also do the same. If you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Sweet potato. What phrase or cliche do you live by? Life short, have as much fun as you can. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? To know every single law in every single jurisdiction that I ever live in. Get away with murder. (laughs) That's a good one. Um, And finally, when you're out in the field, what brand of work boots do you wear? Bloodies. What else are there? Are there any others? (laughs) Look, there's some good answers that come through. You never know. Um, (laughs) Thank you. They are good boots. I do agree with you. So I'm, I'm here for that. All right. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. If anyone's listening from Blunston, uh, size nine and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Good on you, Beck. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Farm Gate, a podcast by Rural Bank where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. For more information, including regular analysis and reports, head to the website, ruralbank.com.au. This show was produced with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Beyond the Farm Gate, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Zali Thomas. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Beck Wren. And we'll see you in the next episode of Beyond the Farm Gate.